Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, uh, it's the end of January. You know what, more likely it's the beginning of February, maybe a little of both if you're listening now. It could officially be February. Uh, my name is Tom Chick and my game of the week is not Settlers of Catan, 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 however you say that. Not my game of the week. Not my game of the month year. I, I, I'm not a fan of Settlers of Catan. That, that game does not do it for me. That's one of the, if I was to make a list of the board games I would least want to play, that would be pretty far down there. Um, the, here, uh, being the end of January, that also means it's the end of board game month. I just now am designating January board game month, and that happened kind of accidentally. Uh, the last three, the last two podcasts, and this will be the third, have been board game themed. Uh, I'm about to present to you a fantastic conversation I had with three gentlemen who make board games about the art of teaching board games to other people. Um, it's something that board games struggle with uniquely in a way that computer games don't have to deal with it because computer games, being interactive in a different way, have tutorials and tool tips and uh, different ways to teach players how to play. Board games, for the most part, don't have that luxury. So uh, we're, we're about to uh, go over to that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and I can promise you that next week we'll be talking more video games. So if board game month is over, we'll still be doing some board game coverage. We'll still be discussing it from time to time on this podcast, but this will be the last exclusively board game-themed podcast for, for a while. I hope. I think. Who knows? We'll find out. Uh, before we get into it, I do want to explain a little bit about why I've been board gaming so much this month. There have been a number of factors that go into that. Um, part of it is it's January. That's a very slow time for video game releases. Uh, and I've been playing some older things, but for the most part, I've just been diving into board games, solitaire board games, board games with uh, some, some friends of mine, which is a, a regular thing as well. Uh, there's uh, a gaming store here that has an open board gaming night. I've been going to that. Um, so there's been a lot of time spent at a tabletop. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate uh, more over video games is, of course, the tactile sense of a, of a board game. Uh, actually touching and moving the pieces and seeing the board laid out before you uh, in a way that a computer screen or an iPad screen often can't quite accomplish. Um, the piles of chits, the shuffling of the cards, the clack of the tokens on the board. Uh, if you play board games, you must appreciate all that stuff as well. Uh, and I've really been responding to that this month. It's, it's been... Uh, it's been very gratifying uh, for a change. Um, also, uh, I kind of want to thank Sony and Microsoft. They've uh, pretty much severed. They don't really talk to me anymore, so I didn't get any of the next-gen consoles. Uh, I think a lot of you might be enjoying those right now. Uh, there are, it sounds like, some great ways to do that. Uh, but that's not been part of my experience lately. Because I, I don't have $1,000 or whatever it would cost to, to buy the, the new consoles. Sony and Microsoft have been uh, very, um, I, I think, punitive about certain things that I've written about their games. They don't really work with me. So not having the next-gen console systems has also afforded me time to play board games, which that, in a way, has, has been great. Um, that might change in the near future. I don't think I can hold off. Uh, from having a next-gen console system for very long. Uh, but for January, that was a great opportunity. 
I did spend some time yesterday uh, with the new downloadable content for uh, Call of Duty Ghosts, and something occurred to me about the difference between that and, and board games. You often hear when you hear people talking about different games, and this is often brought up in the context of PC games versus console games, this idea that some games are lean-forward games, some games are lean-back games. And part of the thinking behind that terminology is that when you play a PC game at your desk, you're leaning forward. You know, to have your hand on the, the mouse and the keyboard, you're, you're, you're leaning a little closer to the screen. It's not quite as expansive. Whereas when you're playing a console game in the living room, you're leaning back. Uh, you have a big old screen up there across the room. You have a controller in your hand. You're on a comfortable couch. Um, and this terminology is used to talk about different kinds of video gaming experiences. Some of them are more, not necessarily passive, but receptive. You're leaning back and you're receiving this entertainment. In other video games, you have to lean forward and concentrate more carefully. Uh, I was keenly aware of that, playing the new downloadable content for Call of Duty Ghosts, that I was leaning back, just running around, shooting stuff. I died a lot. Yeah, that happens. Um, certainly frantic, exciting stuff, lots going on on the screen, but still very much, eh, just lean back and let it happen. When I play a board game, uh, it requires a unique sense of concentration that a lot of video games don't ask of me. And that, that even applies to strategy games. Uh, playing some of the new downloadable content for Europa Universalis 4, Conquest of Paradise. Uh, that is also just time runs by. Every now and then something happens. You respond to it. You move a slider. Uh, there's great narrative going on there to be sure. But it's, it's a kind of a lean back thing. And I don't, I can, I can look at the numbers and I can study different screens, but it's whenever I want to. Um, there is something kind of laid back about Paradox's real time, uh, approach to strategy games. A board game is nothing like that. A board game demands that you lean forward and that you study it. Uh, one of the, the games I've been playing solitaire lately is called Robinson Crusoe. It's a cooperative survival game where you're shipwrecked on a, on a deserted island and you have to survive. And in fact, you have to carefully manage what you do with your characters to, to reach the goals for that particular scenario. Um, and there are times when I'm playing Robinson Crusoe, I haven't shared it with my group yet, I've just been playing solitaire, it's one of those cooperative games that you can just as easily play solitaire as with other people. Uh, playing at solitaire, there are times where I just sit there and concentrate, and I look at the board, and I think, if I do this, that will happen. And if I try this here, then that will happen. And then the next turn, this will come up. And I really cherish that, that, that lean-forward, demanding concentration that you have to apply to the game. Uh, in the conversation you're about to hear, one of the, the fellows uh, is a designer named Phil uh, Eklund. England? Eklund, yes, uh, Phil Eklund. And at one point he talks about the sense of investment, or, or just the straight up, the investment required in a board game, in learning how to play, in playing it, uh, in, in trying to win it. And that sort of set off a light bulb for me. Yes, there's a sense of investment. When I am playing Call of Duty Ghosts, the downloadable content, no investment whatsoever. The game does not demand much of me at all. Um, it lets me just splay out on the couch and experience whatever is going to happen. Uh, even playing Conquest of Paradise in Europa Universalis 4, 
whatever happens can happen. I could reload a saved game. Actually, I can't. I'm playing Iron Man. But whatever happens, I could start a new game. Um, that sense of investment is unique in a board game, and I'm really appreciating that. And in fact, that might be part of my, uh, my, my problem with the game I reviewed recently called The Hunters, published by GMT Games. It's a solitaire game based on playing a U-boat captain uh, during World War II over his career. Uh, and it's, it's, as far as a board game goes, it's very lean back. You don't have to make a lot of decisions. There are a few. But for the most part, you're rolling dice and you're checking this, these charts to find out where your sub is assigned, whether or not your torpedoes hit, how hard they hit, uh, whether or not a plane is going to discover you. It's a very kind of lean back, receptive, almost passive game. And I think part of my problem with it, uh, it sort of crystallized for me today as I was talking to these guys, and as Phil Eklund used the term investment, part of my problem with it is that it's not a very demanding game. And to some people, that's an asset. I'm sure that some people really enjoy that aspect of it. But that was part of why I didn't really like it, is uh, unlike a lot of the board games that I'm playing, it didn't require that kind of intense concentration, and it wasn't really cerebral about me puzzling out what I'm going to do and what choices I'm going to make. Um, so at any rate, uh, to close out January, our, our huge board gaming month, um, I present to you a conversation with uh, three gentlemen who I respect greatly for some of the work they've done uh, about how to teach a board game. Uh, here comes me, Phil Eklund at Sierra Madre Games, Rob Davio, I think I'm saying his name right, uh, newly independent from Hasbro. I think his company is called... Iron Wall. You know what? I, he'll he'll mention it later. I don't want to mess that up. Uh, and then finally, uh, Jamie Stigmeyer. Ugh, I should have learned these names. You know what? They will introduce themselves. Jamie made a great game called Euphoria, uh, a very well-paced, uh, ebullient worker placement game that I heartily recommend. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves in just a moment. So uh, here we go. Uh, this week's podcast on how to teach board games. Well, I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going, I'm on my way. I'm taking my time, but I don't uh, know Rob Davio, it seems like your career in board gaming has been suspended between trying to advance games beyond a lot of the uh, early, simpler stuff that, that Hasbro maybe did, and, and simultaneously trying to bring them to a wider audience. You, you have a long background with Hasbro. Uh, folks know you for the Risk Legacy series. Uh, you're, you've got Seafall coming up, which seems like the next step in that. I, I kind of feel that you, more than anyone else, must appreciate the fine art of how to teach a, a new board game. Um, what would you say, Rob Davio, is the single most important thing when it comes to teaching folks a board game? Um, I, I think single most thing is always tricky. I would say know your audience, and by that I mean know who you're talking to. Are these people who want to jump right in and learn from experience? Are these people who want to know all the little rules before they start so they don't get halfway through and say, oh, you didn't tell me that, I would have done it differently? Uh-huh. Which are the people who want to win from game one? Some people are content to just play. Um, you know, sort of like who's there, why are they there, so you can tailor your pitch to them. Because I've seen very good explanations fall on deaf ears because it's not the explanation that that audience wants to hear. Very good. And, yeah, I think we've all heard that, oh, why didn't you tell me X, Y, or Z? I would have done something differently. Yeah, we've all been there. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jamie Stegmeyer, you uh, from Stonemeyer Games, you've recently published uh, Euphoria, uh, Build a Better Dystopia, which, along with the fact for this, 
you have done something which I, I don't think I've seen done before, Jamie, and I, I wonder uh, what you would think the single most important thing is in teaching a board game, because when you published Euphoria and you wrote the fact, at the bottom of the fact, you kind of have an outline for here is the order in which I think you should explain things in Euphoria. Here is here is not how to play Euphoria, but here's how to teach Euphoria. Uh, so as someone who obviously that was some of your thinking in terms of bringing this game to people, Jamie, what would you say is the single most important thing in teaching a board game? Sure, yeah, I, I really like this question. There's a lot that will go into it that I'm sure we'll talk about. But what I found for Euphoria and for other games, um, the the cog that makes the biggest difference when I'm explaining a game is giving players a uh, a clear short-term goal to pursue early on in the game. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into it, but I like to give players something that they can do without really having to think that hard about it while they're getting a feel for how the game uh, unfolds and interacts as a whole. So that short-term goal is probably the, my number one focus when I teach a game. And it seems like Euphoria is uniquely suited to that with the, the recruit cards. I like how exactly. you let those recruit cards kind of fill that, that role. You know, you can dump someone into a game and tell them how to win, but as far as the steps it takes to get there, a lot of games don't necessarily give you guidance. Those recruit cards that you have in Euphoria are basically, hey, here's what you do early on. Do this, and then later on, figure out the rest of the stuff. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, Phil Eklund, uh, you have, uh, I think you're known for games that, uh, I, I don't mean this as a, as a way to denigrate them or criticize them, but you are known, Phil, for some very complex games. Uh, and I personally find that exciting. A game like High Frontiers, with its its combination of hard science and sci-fi, being about exploring the solar system and beyond. Bios megafauna uh, is kind of, I've heard it described as dominant species without the euro. Uh, you've uh, made a game called Pax Porfiriana about Mexican politics uh, around the 1900s. Uh, you must face unique challenges when it comes to teaching people your games. Or I certainly know, Phil, that you have presented me with unique challenges when it comes to teaching people your games. Uh, what would you say is the single most important thing in teaching a game? Well, Tom, I have to agree that the uh, it's a uh, the uh, simulation business has uh, a lot of wrinkles in it, and um, what I try to aim for is the experience. And um, so when you're introducing someone to a new uh, horizon in gaming, then it's the most important thing is just to get the fundamentals of the gaming landscape laid out. Their options, their their process options. So and and do it in some kind of hierarchy of of importance and. Uh, Summarize those, and you don't attempt to go into excruciating detail or anything because uh, failure is all part of the experience, and they certainly are going to fail the first few times, first maybe even the first six, seven dozen times. But uh, if you get at least the um, fundamental options that they have, then they have the ability to fail. That, that definitely reminds me of what Rob said about know your audience and how there are kind of two different kinds of people to whom you teach a game. There are the people who expect to be able to win, to have all the tools required to win, and then there are some people who are just happy to be along for the experience. Uh, and I find that it, it's almost 
a fundamentally different teaching process with either kind of person. Uh, and it's uniquely challenging when you have a mix of both in, in a group. Um, yeah, that, that's always a challenge because some people are happy to fumble around and make mistakes, yeah. and someone else is, is just hell-bent for victory. And, it, and they kind of fight each other for a game one. Well, and they kind of feel in a way like it's, and this is fair, that it's incumbent upon you, the teacher of the game, to help them win the game, to, to give them everything they need to know to win the game. Uh, let me ask you guys this. When you go, when you sit down to teach a game, do you feel like you need to tell everybody everything? Or do you feel it's okay to say, here are some basics, I'll tell you the rest of it as the game goes on? Oh, I, I'm a big fan of that. Just in time rules, right? But not like the moment they need them, but say, okay, now we're nearing the end of this round. Let me tell you how the end of the round works, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, we're going to do this and that and that, and, you know, draw this card or whatever, you know, might organizational stuff might happen. Um, I feel hearing that at the beginning, you're just lost. You have no idea. Um, hearing it right when it's about to happen might be too late because you might have made some changes. So finding the moment to inject those rules is is an art and a skill that sometimes I get right and sometimes I don't. Do you guys play games while you're teaching them? Like, do you teach people a game and then play the game with them? Um, sometimes. So I, mean, I, I, I like being a great uh, game sommelier, right? So if I, I'm always, <laughs> I'll be the first one to sit out. Oh, we have three, and you guys are interested in this. I have the game for you, right? And then try to, and then I'll, you know, I might sit out or something, but happy to do either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil, do you teach your games a lot? Oh well, and the um, conventions and at Essen, I do um, teach the games, and at uh, some of my classrooms, I do. But um, I just have to echo. That uh, just in time, I like that phraseology. You do want to introduce the the rules as they become pertinent. Otherwise, the eyes glaze over, and um, it's it's not meaningful without the context that suddenly it's essential. But as he said, um, you have to do it. Um, so that there are not already too far along a path without the um, essential piece. The, the way I kind of think of it, and I actually had the good fortune to talk to Martin Wallace last week, which was a, a, an awesome experience, and I was talking to him a little bit about teaching games, and the way I kind of expressed it, and I didn't even realize this until I was explaining it, is that teaching a game, you, you have to have a blueprint into which you plug the little modules. You you lay out for a player a plan. It's almost like a house. Uh, and you make sure there's a door for every rule. You know, here's the place we're going to be exploring. Here's the overall structure of it. Um, and then into that structure, you start putting the little pieces so it needs a, a foundation or a blueprint or uh it's like a room and then you have hooks around the room where you hang things uh and it's really important to establish that room from the get-go as you say phil lay out the fundamentals um so for example and, and that's kind of the game's overarching structure so for example there's a there's a co-op game called battlestar galactica um, and Battlestar Galactica has all these little spaces you can move to and different actions you can do. And it's got uh, mechanics with cards where everybody's putting cards into a pile to try to resolve actions. Uh, but I feel like before you explain any of that, you just need to start with this very basic, hey, here's a spaceship. We are trying to get this spaceship to Earth. Here's how many jumps it takes to get there. Uh, and here is the food and the morale and the population that we need to preserve. Like I feel like that's what you want to start with is an, is a is a 
basic goal and structure into which everything gets plugged. Uh, and I feel like every game needs that. I, I, I totally agree. I, I've used different terminology. I like your blueprint and rules analogy, but I, I'm seeing some commonalities between all three of us in that I always talk about like recursive learning, right? You lay out the outline. Here's the top level. Here's the big picture. Now let's circle around and get a little bit deeper into the stuff you need to know. And maybe you can start at that point, and then you start doing the nitty-gritty details as you get into it. But laying out that big picture is vital, which is why I'm a sucker for theme. Yeah. Right? Because like if you tell me, here's the story we're going to tell like with Battlestar Galactic, I'm like, got it. Right? Whether it's a movie or whether it's a book, I understand the dramatic narrative that's happening. I understand the beats. Now just tell me the mechanics that are going to bring that story to life. And the same thing would apply to a history game. All right, here's a historical event. Great. Yeah. Now, how are we going to bring that to life? Uh, Phil, yeah, I've got to have a plot. Like you say, if it's a story, it's got to have a plot. It's got to have, um, you know, a barrier to um, for the protagonist to get through. And, um, well, like any art form, any literary art form. And uh, for High Frontier, my science fiction game, um, I usually lead out saying, well, the plot of this story is that water is the key to the solar system, and this is what I believe, that um, if you have um, can get the ability to extract water from asteroids or other places in the solar system, then you will have the ability to have the propellant necessary to um, master um, going between these places economically. So, and this is how you do it. And, and, and that's, that's how you lead it in. You, you, every story has to have a plot. Phil, I think it's uniquely cruel of you to bring up an out-of-print game as an example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would like to say, because I haven't played it, um, just from that, I'm like, as a gamer learning, I'm like, okay, there's one major resource. It's water. It right. sounds like it has multiple uses. I can use it as fuel for travel, or I can use it to sell. That's my key to victory. It sounds like it's maybe being uh, like establishing, you know, a hegemony, or I'm greater than the other players. I'm trying to sort of empire building, mining, resource gathering. I don't know if any of these are true, but you've like laid out like oh, those are all play. true. All right, so that's what I got. And you haven't talked about the gameplay at all. You've just laid out a narrative, and I can see. To Jamie's point, I can see the rooms now where I'm going to put furniture. Like I, I got it, and the just tell me goals. Right. right, tell me the short-term goals that will lead to that. Phil, uh, the the game of yours that I am familiar with, Pax Porfiriana, I always lead with the regime structure because the regime is currently a, a global modifier on on how certain mechanics work and on how you win the game. And I feel like the regime is the house, uh, and and it's also something everyone understands. Okay, Mexico is U.S. protectorate. Okay, Mexico is an anarchy. It is in, under martial law, or uh, Porfirio, uh, Porfirio is in charge. You know, one of those four things is is a, a determinant of the basic structure of the game. Uh, so that's a narrative for me there. Um, Jamie, with Euphoria, uh, one of the things I think everybody understands, and the board is so pretty in Euphoria, everybody looks at that and wants to know, hey, what's going on here? What, what can I do? What, what's this wall between this area and that? What are these guys doing underground? What's with those blimps up there? Uh, <laughs> there's a great hook in, um, in Euphoria for that, but one of the things that I feel is that I feel like I, I really want to help a player understand before they place their first worker is the basic flow of the economy. 
And that's not intuitive, and it's not even necessarily familiar because you're using different resources from the usual worker placement games. Um, so one of the things that I really want to lay out for folks when I'm creating this house where we're going to have this experience and play this game is the economy of euphoria, but that's a fairly complex thing. Um, and it's not something that you really touch on when you mentioned in your fact, here's how to teach uh, euphoria. Uh, do you feel like that should be something someone learns over the course of playing? Do you think it's a little overload to, to lead with that? Well, what I did in, in that... In that fact, there's a link to a little video that I filmed that shows players how to teach Euphoria. And I believe it's in that video. It may be in a longer one that I filmed. But I take a player through a couple turns to show them, uh, through, through a few like sample turns, ah. to show them how that economy works. <laughs> so if you place workers on the commodity area, that's how you get commodities. And then you spend those commodities to gain resources, and then you spend those resources to do this other thing. And so that kind of gets them through the cycle of the economy just by sh- showing a few sample turns. Part of it, too, Jamie, is I'm, I'm so excited about that economy. It's one of the things I really want to share, but it, it's as a game teacher, this is something you constantly have to be mindful of. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something that I have learned because I've played the game several times, and when a new player sits down at that board, they don't know that, so they don't have the, the kind of foundation for that that I do. I, I want to share this exciting thing with them, but if I... If I just burble on excitedly about it, or if I even talk about the details of it, that's a little bit of overload. Overload. You have to know where to cut off the details and what to let players discover on their own. I, I think. I, I'd love to follow follow up. I'm sorry, Jamie. Yeah, go Rob. Ahead. Oh, oh um, um, go ahead, Rob, and then I'll follow. I'll go okay, I, I just yeah. want to put a point out there. I, the word overload, mm-hmm. I think, is a real critical point to this discussion. So I just want to kind of dig in deep on that after Jamie responds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's that's what I'm going into here. Um, with Euphoria and with pretty much any game, um, I I try to focus... Like, when I'm explaining that economy, I kind of try to show it on a micro level. So, like, in Euphoria, there are four different factions, and they all have very similar economies. Rather than teaching players how all of those different economies work, I focus on one of the factions. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, like when I play uh, Seven Wonders, when I teach Seven Wonders, I don't put all the cards out on the table when I explain it. I put one of each type of card out on the table to show players what each type of card means. I think if you limit that information when you're teaching rather than throwing everything to them at once, they can parse that information a lot lot more easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When I'm teaching Seven Wonders to someone new, I say, here is science. Don't do this first game. <laughs> right? I said, it's actually a good path to victory, and you may lose, but just... If you see one of these cards, just pass it on, right? Just focus on the rest of the game and then see how it looks at the end and you'll get the hang of it. Because it's, it's not that it's bad. I feel like it, that's the overload. That's the one thing too much where you're like, and this works in a grid. And you, and you, you got mixed sets and, and sets of the same thing and they, you know, like, and they build and people, that's when their brains just snap. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'll do when I get a new game is I'll read the rules. I'm one of those weird guys who loves reading rules. I love rules. I love a manual. I can sit down and just read game manuals for I, for games that I don't even own. I'm fine with that. Uh, and so when I when I have a new game that I want to teach to our group, I will read that manual two, three times at least. And I will take notes about... That, that kind of revise the manual in a way, and I'll I'll sort of 
make this this cheat sheet for how I think the game should be taught and not necessarily how the manual uh, addresses it. And I'll list, you know, I'll, I'll do that overarching narrative structure. I'll sort of list the different rooms that I feel that should be plugged in. And I'll create a kind of a sequence for teaching the game, which tries to keep in mind this overload thing. Like, don't get too detailed with certain things. Don't hit them with this aspect yet. Uh, and a lot of the the process of teaching a game involves telling players like your thing with the science card in Seven Wonders, Rob, ignore this for now. Don't even look at this. Don't be scared of it. Just it, pretend that doesn't even exist. Uh, and, and Jamie even mentioned for Euphoria in your, your video, I think, maybe consider covering some of the board with a piece of paper. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just physically remove it from the equation yeah. where there's, it's not even coming into their eyes. They don't even get to see it yet. Uh, so yeah, a lot of it is, uh, is for me digesting the rules and then redigesting and, and reinterpreting how they should be expressed, kind of, to, to a new group. Um, so Tom, when you get ready to play, when you get ready to, when you learn a game for the purpose of teaching it, do you ever play, play the game out by yourself a little bit? I've heard that some players do that. They'll play like a, so, a multiplayer solo game. Right. So what, what I'll do, and, and this, uh, I'd love to hear you guys' opinion on this, cause you guys have all made games, and it's something I've never done. What I will do for that purpose, Jamie, is to get hands-on experience with how the game sits on the table, with the mm-hmm. kind of the interface of it. Like, it's one thing to read rules, and I, I've, I do that plenty, but it's another thing to, to then have the pieces in front of you. And th- there are a lot of discovery moments. I recently got a, a grand co-op game called Robinson Crusoe, and I'd read the rules for it several times, and then I got the game and discovered that having the game and reading the rules are two completely different things, that game mm-hmm. especially, uh, it, it can be a huge mess. So, so what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll lay it out on a table and I'll kind of create a quote unquote interface for it. Uh, and a lot of games take this into account. Some don't. And that involves where does this deck of cards go? Where do these tokens go? How should I lay this out on, on the table when I explain it? Um, so that for me is kind of a test game is seeing how it fits on the table, uh, how to present it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've taught before, uh, Twilight, uh, Imperium, which I, I think we might all know is a huge, grand space opera game with with politics and diplomacy and battle and exploration and resource management. Uh, and I've I've got this whole it's almost like a course uh, where <laughs> you, you start out by just showing them the ships and telling them what each ship does and 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 sort of laying in the basic combat stuff. And then you put out the tiles to show movement. And it's a whole sequence that I kind of created from having played it, having just considered how it fits on, on the table. So mm-hmm. for me, that's kind of an interface issue. Uh, uh, go ahead. It's, sorry, it's interesting. You're like a designer's, you know, just dream, right? <laughs> Reading the rules multiple times ahead of times, taking notes, looking at the organizational dynamics of how the pieces go around. I'm like, great, if everyone's like you... My job is easy, well, um, but too many people open the box and be like, "All right, let's figure this out." While people are staring at yes. them, going, "I want to play now." And Rob, that so that gets to me, Rob. What I think the single most important thing is in teaching a game, and I love all your answers, but for me, it's very different because I'm not designing games. I'm I'm trying to sell them to my friends. I want my friends to like the games that I like so that we can play them. For me, the single most important thing is knowing the game because I've been a guy who's been sitting there where somebody who doesn't know it really well is trying to show it to us and we figure it out as we go, and you only get one chance at that first impression. 
you know, and that can kill a game. And I know you guys must understand, you've made these really cool games, and it's out of your hands how people experience them, because it's going to come down to, does someone teach it well, or are they sitting around trying to read the manual as they play, and is that first playthrough just a big, confused mess? And is yeah. your game, therefore, dead in everybody's hands? Uh, so for, for me, I, and I... I, I it's, it's hugely important that if a player has a question, I know it. Because if they ask me a question and then I'm having to flip through the manual, that's dead time. And that's them just kind of hanging fire and not enjoying the experience of the, of the game. Um, yeah, I, I think... think... Oh, oh, go, go ahead, ahead Rob. Go ahead. Nope. Me? All right. Um, I worked very much in the mass market for most of my career. Where these aren't people who have a passion for games. This is a mom whose kid said, can we play this now? Mm. And a large part of the purchasing decision is not, is this a fun new game, but uh, do I have to learn the rules? This? No. Okay. <laughs> right. Great. It's Monopoly, whatever. Justin Bieber, whatever, whatever you like. Fill in your like, like, I know this. I don't have, now, they may know it wrong, but they can go right from buying to playing as soon as possible. And when you've got a six year old saying, I want to play, I want to play, and you're like looking through a, a piece of paper, um, that's really daunting. So that, that, I run everything through that filter that that learning a game is being done by people who didn't necessarily sign up to teach it, right. um, and, and that changes how I do things for for better or for worse at times. And and you must realize, Rob, that is kind of limiting. Like Phil's Phil's games are amazing experiences that some people, I guess, it's a sad fact. Just they don't they're not going to be able to enjoy that kind of experience. Uh, it's it's and I I I when I taught Pax Porfiriana, we had one player who by the time the the lesson was over, like by the time I'd explained the game to him, uh, he was just like, you know, this this is too complicated for me. I I can't play this. And he went and played a fighting game on the Xbox while we played that. And I felt like that was a failure on my part because Phil had done this awesome thing that I wanted to share with him, and it, I just couldn't bring it to him. It was too much for him, and that's kind of a sad fact of gaming audiences. Uh, it is. I, 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 I'm very keen to watch for the glaze-over effect. Yes. <laughs> um, and one trick that I've learned, it's not the most important thing, it's, it's like what you'd see on the internet in ad, this one simple trick, um, is that when I see people start to glaze over, it's almost always when I'm about 80% done the rule. <laughs> I'm almost there. Stay with me. Don't, lo- right. don't let me lose you yet. And the thing <laughs> is, and I realized at some point, they don't know I'm 80% right. done. When you're learning a game, you're like, am I 10%? How much more of this do I have to learn? My brain's full. And so, so right when I get to that 75, 80%, I say, okay, you're about 80% done. Just a few more things of importance, and then we'll get started. And you can see people relax. They're like, oh. Right, right. All right, I'm at mile 22 of this marathon. Yes. Okay, <laughs> great. I well, Take me home. Let's land this thing. <laughs> and and I really think that has made a big difference when I explain games, and I really wish that there was some way to let them know at the beginning. I'm going to, well, maybe I, we can do this. Like, I'm going to teach you five things. There is a way to do that, Rob. I mean, what you're saying is something that for, for almost every game I teach, I, I believe strongly in visual aids. So I'll put up on the wall... Uh, something that says like here are the five here are the five actions you can do in your turn, for instance. And once I teach you all these five actions, we're done. We're going to be able to play. And I make a point in teaching those five actions to, to sort of filter, put in there the rest of the rules they need to know, so they can see on the wall behind me how close we are to being done and to actually starting to play. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like they need to know when the end is coming. They need to know how long they're going to have to sit there to learn it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like I, the psychology behind that. It's like when you're filling out an online survey, the ones that have the little progress bar at the right. bottom, you're a lot more likely to do it because they're like, oh, okay, I only have, I'm 50% of the way through. But if you didn't know how far you are, you might just give up. Right. I wonder, I wonder if we could do better in, uh, in constructing rules for games to have that, like you know, you put something on the middle of the table that shows these are the five things yeah. we're going to teach right now. And yeah, don't get me started, them. Jamie. You guys could do way better. I mean, Jamie, <laughs> your, your thing about how to teach it, for instance, I would love to see more developers do that because uh, a lot of it, so again, I'm not name dropping, but in talking to Martin Wallace, he was telling me he hates rules. He hates writing rules, and I can imagine a lot of developers must feel that way uh, mm-hmm. because of the it. You know, it, it it involves a lot of tricky language, and and you have to uh, go over it many times and, and consider how it could be interpreted, and you lose the ability to see with neutral eyes what you're doing. Um, but man, I, I wish I, so many of you guys. I just want to throttle and think why you could do so much better with the rules. Uh, and one of the things that really helps, and Jamie, I think Euphoria does a great job with this, is baking stuff onto the board. Uh, Euphoria mm-hmm. is one of those rare games, and maybe it's because it's a worker placement, so you have a luxury that, that a game like Pax Porphyriana doesn't necessarily have. Uh, all the rules are out there. Like, like once I teach the game, if somebody has a question, it, it's mostly answered on the board. Uh, and that's not something that a lot of games can do. Uh, but I really appreciate it when games do that. Yeah. One thing that I, I discovered after designing Viticulture, so I designed Viticulture, published it, and ab- about two months later, I got an email from a guy who had put together uh, a two-page reference guide to, to Viticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you, you all have probably seen that for, for many of your games, Rob and Phil. Maybe you have users on BoardGameGeek who make a, a quick guide. And I didn't really realize the value of it until I had it in my hands. And I didn't really realize that I'm probably not the person to make that quick guide. I need someone else outside of me to mm-hmm. boil all the rules down to a one or two page guide. And so from now on for all of my games, I'm, I, I'm sending the game to this guy before we publish it. And he, he puts together the two page guide so the players have that. Right. I know that's not unique to, to, uh, Stillmeyer at all, but it, it was kind of a, a revelation for me. Well, and that's kind of why I, I make that sheet of papers. As I'm learning the game, I can also be mindful of what things were difficult for me to learn, uh, mm-hmm. and I can I can either explain that a different way or maybe explain it a couple of times if necessary. But what was difficult for me to learn, the folks who made the game have long since lost sight of how hard that might be to learn, uh, right. and so it does take those those neutral eyes. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, so here's a, uh, and I've mentioned this in other talks I've given and. Um, the guy who hired me at Hasbro, Mike Gray, who just retired, pointed this out to me. He's a big rules guru. Um, rules have two functions, and we're talking about one of their two functions, which is they teach the game. And when you teach the game, you want to get into it. You want to you want to glaze over the exceptions, the tiebreakers, the weird things, like what happens when the deck runs out, and all the stuff that the designer has to put in there in case it happens. And you want to distill it down to that two-page summary, because people want to get into it, and you want to learn the... 50 to 80 percent you need the same rule book has to be a reference guide when you're playing for when you hit those problems right right now you have to have covered every corner of the game where it can fall apart so you have one document that has two purposes and you can't leave stuff out or i'll never address you know purpose two which means purpose one teaching the game has all of the stuff in it that you don't need and I have yet to figure out in a printed manual 
how to pull those apart in a clever and interesting way without basically making two books. Yeah, and, and, and those two books... The way books- I do it um, is that, um, not that this is clever or interesting, but uh, I include a glossary. And the glossary is... Um, is pretty useless for teaching the game, uh, but it's pretty essential if you're in the thick of it for finding something fast. And this glossary is useful, too, for defining terms which are used over and over in the rules. And then, finally, the glossary can include all the little edge points, the tiebreakers and corner instances and comprehensive details that you need in in context to be able to to not run into a wall. And this is useful to having a set of rules that um, is concentrated on teaching a game and then uh, but having a bunch of terms that are in bold print or something else like that, which you know are defined in the glossary, and um, that you can get the details from breaking you out and going into this. This is a two-document thing, but it's um, integrated together, so it's not really two documents. It's 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 what you need to learn and then what you need for the nitty-gritty details and stuff you forgot and stuff you need uh, access to instantly. Phil, what, uh, what your glossary reminds me of in Pax Porphyriana, it, it's like a lot of rule books have an index, and that's your conditions to when you want to know something, you go check the index. Instead of you having an index, when you look up the word, instead of having the page number, it re-explains the rules. Uh, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it, it, it is... It, it doesn't get away from Rob's two book problem, but that's a that's an immensely helpful second book to have in the back of the manual. Is instead of the index, it's just the rules again. It's the, it's the glossary. But even there, Phil, like I have as someone who really likes Pax Porphyriana, I'm kind of mad at you because there's this awesome mechanic called strife that if I hadn't read the glossary, I don't think I would have known about. And even someone that someone gifted me Pax Perferiana, and he even told me, don't think the glossary is just a glossary. Read it. Um, so even there, it's, it's a great tool, but it still gets into that two-book problem that Rob mentioned. And as a guy who loves reading rules, I'm fine with two books. But I, I know folks who've paid, played Pax Perferiana who didn't know about the strife mechanic uh, because they thought, ah, the glossary, I'll just check that later. Um, so, so even then, and, and here's another thing that I also love about the glossary, Phil. The glossary forces you, as a designer, to be super careful with your word choice. Uh, you know, when you use a word, know that that word means a very specific thing. And, and this is one of the things that I've run into with Robinson Crusoe, which is originally, uh, it's either a German or Polish language game, I'm not sure which. But the translation, the localization of that is horrible, and it, it causes unique problems for an English audience, because it uses interchangeably words like fight or battle or attack. 
you know, those should all be very specific words for very specific things when it comes to resolving rules. Um, things are, are interchangeably re- referred to as tokens or markers in Robinson oh. Crusoe. And I'm like, no, you can't, <laughs> you know, be careful what you're telling me because this says one thing in this rule, but then two pages later it's telling me something different. So, Phil, one of the things I love about the glossary idea is it forces specific word choices, and that's hugely important. Yeah, definition is crucial in almost all art forms, communications, teaching. Uh, you got to have the sharpest definitions uh, yeah. available. Uh, so getting away from words then, Jamie, you, you, you mentioned your video a couple of times. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you guys feel? I, I, I recently got a, a, a game from a company called Plaid Hat Games. I believe you're working with them, Rob. They okay. have on the cover of their, their, their manuals, and I, I love this, it's a big old stop sign. It's not big. It's down in the corner of the manual, and it says, stop. <laughs> if you don't want to read the rules, if you want us to teach you the rules, go to this URL, and you can see a video. Um how do you guys feel about the use of video uh, for either a supplement or a replacement for, for teaching uh, board games? I, I'm a big fan, mm-hmm. conceptually, um, in that it splits it, that the rule book be- can become the reference book. Or if you want to read it because you like reading rule books, you can read it. But there is an alternative way to teach it or learn it. And it starts to get into that two-book thing that I was you know, alluding to before. Mm-hmm. I'm going to watch the video. It's going to teach me how to play. Then when I pick up the rule book, I'm now filling in the gaps or reminding myself of a few, you know, key points. I'm not saying it's ideal, but it's an interesting area to be exploring. Mm-hmm. Jamie, it's obviously something that you are availing yourself of. Yeah, absolutely. And not just for my own games, but often when I have a game night and I know that we're going to learn a, a or at least when some players are going to learn a new game, a new complicated game that night, I'll send a link to the to a video. Ah in the email, even if it's just a five-minute quick overview, just to give them some foundation, some visual foundation. Um, even like a Tom Vassell video, Tom doesn't go into the, the rules all that well, but he'll give you a good overview of the game. Mm-hmm. And once they have that foundation, it's so much easier to teach when they arrive for game night. It's kind of like they have that house ready for you to plug the rooms into, or they've looked exactly. at the blueprint already. Yeah. 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 Uh, Phil, is that something you've ever explored, video, working with videos or video tutorials? I dislike that genre. Um, I have had, um, you know, in teaching, sometimes they they try in university courses or whatever to have um, videos instead of um, a teacher or, or substitute books away. In my experience, um, this is has not been successful. I could be a dinosaur here in this. <laughs> I think a, a book is something that uh, you, you doesn't power down or you don't have to plug it in and um, is instantly cross-referenceable and um, you have um, uh, the accessibility. I don't think technology is caught up with the book and it hasn't in, what, uh, 5,000 years. But, well, Phil, uh, I, I, you and me can start a Luddites club because I'm with you. I, I completely understand that some people would, would rather watch a video, and I completely understand with Rob and Jamie that, that videos can be great supplements. Um, but I'm with you, Phil, in that 
I don't really want to watch a video. I want to read a book. And furthermore, when I teach a game, I want it to be interactive. If somebody has a question, I want them to be able to, to ask it. And I know, Rob and Jamie, you're not saying that it's a replacement for a good teacher. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but for me, it's yeah. something that arranges your entertainment for you. So you can sort of power down, switch off, and just veg out, and you get led along. It's very but, passive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, but it is like you're, you're, you're saying, I mean, Phil, you and I in a way are both dinosaurs because I, I think it's a generational thing. I think these days, just a lot of young people coming into the genre want to be shown how the game works. And, and something that feeds into this, uh, this, I, I play a lot of video games for, for my day job and, and video games have conditioned people, hey, you don't have to learn this. We're going to teach it to you while you're playing. You know, we're going to give you a tutorial that's the first level. And furthermore, for a lot of strategy games, there's going to be tool tips. Anytime you want to know something, just hover your mouse over it. You know, just jump in and the information will be at your fingertips. And board games can't really do that. You know, you, you kind of have to know going in a lot more about a board game than you do about a video game because it doesn't have that, that interactive that, that ability to sort of feed you information. You've got to invest in it. Exactly. There is definitely that sense of investment early on. Yeah. Um, um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's an age thing. How old are we talking here? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm delightfully creeping into middle age. But I, um, Yeah, I think Jamie's probably the kid here. Jamie, I'm guessing you're 28. <laughs> I wish I was 28. I'm, I'm 33. <laughs> well, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 47, and I grew up with com- with computer games at a time when you had to read manuals. You know, I remember <laughs> loving flight simulators where I had no idea what button did what when I booted it up, and that manual was was this almost magical sense of discovery. This, oh, that's how that works, or oh, that's what that does. Uh, so I was conditioned at an early age to have that sense of investment that Phil is talking about. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I span the difference, although I'm closer to uh, Tom's age. I'm 43, almost 44. But, um, you know, so I'm right on the cusp of those things. So, I mean, this goes back to my point that I said at the beginning when you asked what's the most important thing about teaching a game is knowing your audience. Some people want to experience. Some people want to watch. Some people want to learn. Some people want to read. Some people want to mull it over. Some people want to jump right in. So I'm not advocating videos as a replacement for right. learning a book. I'm saying it's a great new venue right. to get people who don't want to read – to uh, you know, be further along in learning a game than it, you know than they would have been if they show up cold. And, and, and no, I was going to say, and some people, for some people, it will largely replace the book, but not everyone. Right, and and that's in in a way, you know, when I teach a game, I'm replacing the book for the people playing it. So if a video can can do that, you know, if I can do that, a video can as well. Uh, and and one of the things that you can get in a video, Rob, is Somebody who's who's entertaining or engaging or enthusiastic, uh, you know, a book cannot necessarily be enthusiastic. It cannot create this sense of, of energy that having someone talk to you about a game can can create. Uh, and that's something you can do with a video. Um, well, if I take it a step further, talk about iPad games or iPhone games. I, I and I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I like the tangible aspect of board games. That's why I make board games and not not digital games. But uh, a couple of years ago, I heard one of the Days of Wonder guys talk about why they make digital versions of the games. And originally, it wasn't so that they could make money off of it, but because they saw the number one barrier to entry for anyone to, to buy one of their physical board games was that they didn't know how to play it. Mm-hmm. Players, all, you know, People instinctively just play the games they already know how to play. 
And so they started creating iPad games to help teach people how to play so they'd want to buy the the real thing, and they've seen that result. So that's what we're doing for Viticulture. When I when I launched the Kickstarter campaign in a couple months for the expansion of Viticulture, if the schedule works out, on, on day one, we'll be launching the iPad app for for the original game of Viticulture so that players can learn how to play before they even back the, camp, the Tuscany campaign to see if they even like the game in the first place, and so they can learn it and know it that way. I, I, I'm sure you and Phil probably aren't behind that idea all that much, but we're going to give it a try. Well, you know, you say that, Jamie, but I, I, I can think of some really big board games that I came to through their iPad apps first. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, Small World is easy enough to learn, but I, I learned Small World through the iPad version. Uh, there's another game, a couple of games that are way more complex. I learned Dominant Species and La Havre through their iPad versions. I'd never seen, I'd heard of them, but I'd never seen the tabletop version. Both of those games I, I, I learned, one of them's actually taught very well. Dominant Species is a fantastic resource for learning how to play. La Havre, not so much so. Uh, but they're, they're both thorough iPad versions of the games, and, and that's how I came to those. And I later bought the physical versions. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, those iPad implementations were hugely important for me. Yeah. Um, um, How do you feel about that, Rob? Have you ever done that with any of your games? Um, I haven't done an iPad implementation, but I do know from a study that I saw when I was at Hasbro, I think I, well, I commissioned it at some point, it's like six, seven, ten years ago, something like that, that for casual gamers, so moms, people who pick up a game, and when you know, and I define casual gamers, those are people who play like two to four games a year, board games. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere between half and two-thirds said that they actively didn't buy a game that they had in their hands because they didn't want to have to read the rules. Mm. Right? They had it. They looked at the cover. It looked interesting. They turned it over. They read the back, and they're like, eh, you know what? I'm going to have to learn how to play this. Like, mm-hmm. over half. So we are dealing with a genre that, for everyday people, is extremely daunting. So I am a big fan of having as many points to get from, I want to play a game, to I'm playing this game and I know what I'm doing and I'm enjoying it. Like I want as many paths to get to that and I want them to yeah. be all short. Um, and a rule book is just one of them. And we can talk, we could have a whole separate conversation about writing a good rule book, which is like my grail quest, right? I've been trying and for a very brief moment for like a year at Hasbro, I actually ran the editorial department. So all rules ran through me and it was like this, it's like this bucket list thing, you know, and at the end I still felt like I had no idea how to make a good rule book or a perfect rule book. Like it's maddening to try to figure it out. Um, well, but you used I the going... stickers in Risk Legacy, which I thought was pretty clever. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm even going to go a step further in Seafall. I'm on the cusp of almost. Ma- I hate to call it a tutorial because I hate tutorials in video games. But what I've discovered in Seafall, which is the game I'm working on now, is that the game that people are playing, they're really really enjoying to the point where I when I introduce new rules through unlocks and twists and stuff, they go, ah, I really like it. I don't want to learn anything new. <laughs> right? That's a step too far. And at the same time, game one is really hard to get your feet under. So I realize I don't have game one through seven. I have game four through 12. Mm-hmm. And I need to strip out about half of it and give them that sort of introductory experience so that they can make games one, two, three, four, whatever the length is, much easier to learn. And then the game will blossom into what I have as game one right now. And for about four days now, I've been putting off, like, 
wrestling with that monster because I haven't quite figured out how to do it. I got ideas and I think I'll do it. Um, so for me, learning as you go and the legacy idea that I have is a very extreme example of I'm physically going to hide stuff you don't need to see. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to because when you do a rule book, you're like basic, intermediate, and advanced, and it always says play a basic game, and you, you as a gamer go, I don't need to play a basic <laughs> game. I'm very smart. And then the intermediate game, you're like, I'm going to go right to the advanced game, and then you jump in the deep end of the pool, and maybe you swim, and maybe you don't. Um, and one of the things about putting stuff in envelopes and in pockets and kind of tucking stuff away is by making new rules a reward, it kind of forces you to play the introductory game as long as the introductory game is still good. So I'm, I'm trying a whole bunch of different things, not with the rules, but with the actual introductory experience. Mm-hmm. Well, Rob, it must be, and, and you've, you've got to be keenly aware of this, it must be kind of encouraging to have seen, you know, since you uh, contracted that study several years ago, uh, the, the changing face of board gamers and the, the, the changing perception of board games. Uh, five years ago, if someone told me they played board games and they weren't really a board gamer, I know they were talking about Monopoly and maybe they'd played Settlers of Catan. Now, when somebody says that, they've probably played Agricola or, or something uh, <laughs> and maybe not done very well. And But they, you know, I, I, I'm surprised the people who are exposed to games like Agricola, which is a brutally difficult, intricate game. Um, and you know, you see people who five years ago would have just been talking about Monopoly. Uh, yeah. we, it seems like we're, we've come a long way and we're still moving in a different direction. It seems like there's there's more of an accept. Wasn't it um, – oh, dadgummit. Is it Parks and Rec where they had a whole storyline where one of the guys on his <laughs> bachelor party – Cones to, of Dunshire. What, what is that? Because I, I don't know it. I was told the, about it. The, the Cones of Dunshire. What is that? <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's basically a game he comes up with. Um, I haven't seen the episode. I've just, okay. um, I happened to just hear about it and did enough research to talk vaguely coherently about it. Um, but it's, a, it's a mainstream, uh, that, that show, it's a mainstream show and they're, they're talking about what five years ago nobody would have known anything about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, they actually, the, um, producers of Parks and Rec had Mayfair Games make the model. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, awesome. Of, of what a model would look like if someone had made it in their house. And the, and I think the joke is that it's not that it's a bad game. It's that it almost falls into if everyone's first game, which is more is better. <laughs> right? And so this guy, this character in the show, and again, I haven't seen it, just more, more, more. So when he goes to explain the game, every piece sounds vaguely interesting, but there's, uh, you know, ten times too many pieces. Right. But on, that, but on that same token, you know, Big Bang Theory, which is one of the top sitcoms in the U.S. had had extensive wood for sheep jokes a couple years ago ah, when they were playing yes. Settlers of Catan. Yep. Um, so, on the one sense, uh, board games are definitely mainstreaming the the sort of lighter hobby games. Um, on the other hand, companies like Hasbro and, and Mattel and some other people are, are really going to toys with rules or very light rules like party games. So it's this interesting... A dynamic that the big companies are going lighter, and then it seems like the hobby games are filling the gap that they're abandoning. Right, right. Um, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, am I a dick when I, I teach a game and I'm playing it? I, I and and invariably someone will have a question because I understand you have to tell every rule maybe two, sometimes three times before people remember it, and that's okay. That's part of the deal. Uh, when somebody asks me a question during a game when I'm playing it. They'll ask me, you know, can, can I buy this or can I move here or, you know, how many points does this take? I, I never answer the question with an answer. I instead answer it with the rule. 
<laughs> like I sort of feel like rather than just saying yes, you can buy that. Like if I repeat the rule, you can buy any tile that is on this space that costs less than this. Like I feel like if I answer a question with a rule, it helps people learn. But then I also feel like I'm kind of being a dick when <laughs> I don't just answer their question. Uh, I, I would say that falls into c- context. Yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I also hate, and I don't know if you guys ever run into this, when I teach a new game and we're playing it, everybody freaking assumes that I'm the one to attack because I know the game best, <laughs> and therefore I'm the one to be taken out first. That's not fair, right? Back me up on this. No, that's totally fair. Ah, oh, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't feel like when I teach a game and I'm playing it that I can't it's this weird situation where like like when you throw a party and you're you're the host of the party and you're not at a party having fun because you want to make sure everyone's having fun at your party it's kind of the same for me with, with board games when I'm teaching someone a board game I, I can't let go I can never just let someone else win so I'm, I'm playing in earnest but I also feel like I can't pay attention to the game the would the way I would if I'm just playing it myself like I, I feel uh, like you know I have to wait until they learn it before I can play it for real, and until then I'm almost like a dummy player. You know I'll just make my moves, but I'm mainly here to make sure they know what they're doing to help them along, uh, and that kind of sucks because the reason I teach a game is because I want to play it. You know I, I want to play it with these right. guys. So I I use two different techniques there. Sometimes I use a, a follow the leader type uh, type teaching example. So I'll I'll play the the most basic way to get the, the victory points in the most standard way and let other players kind of follow me along as I do that so that they can learn. And the other way I do it is to tell them what that standard way is, and I go way out of my way to try a strategy that is not as viable and that I normally mm-hmm. wouldn't do just to kind of stay out of their way. But that one is almost a little more interesting to me because I like to try different strategies. So it's still right. the game is interesting to me, but I'm staying out of everyone's way so they can still have a good time. That is kind of funny, Jamie, because you do find, like, if you teach a game, people will assume that they should do what you're doing as the guy right. who taught the game. Yeah. Right. H- have either of you ever considered being transparent about either of those things? Oh, and yeah. By I, that, I tell people when I do that. Right. By that, I'm saying, okay, here's the game. I've explained the rules. I'm going to play with you. Here's what I'm going to do to try to win. It's kind of a mainstream oh. strategy. And so mm-hmm. everyone knows what you're trying to do, so they can either choose to follow you or right. choose to do something different. But you're not... You know, they're trying to figure out, like, how it all fits together. If you say, here's my short and medium, I'm going to try to do X, Y, Z to win. Absolutely. And a lot of times I'll explain in a way I wouldn't do if I was playing competitively why I'm doing something. Like, okay, I'm going to this in hopes that this will happen, that I can try to do this. Uh, and I, I, and the reason is I figure if they really knew the game already, they would know that stuff. So it's okay for me to tell them. They would see where I was going and, and what I was going for. Uh, I'm also a big proponent you know, some some guys, especially guys who play a lot of games, they'll just take their move, uh, and that's that's fine. But I'm a big proponent of, of saying out loud what you're doing, uh, mm-hmm. sort of announcing what you're doing as a way of reinforcing. You know, here's how the rules work. Here's why I'm doing this. Uh, and and people who are practiced board gamers a lot of times don't feel the need to do that. They just take their turn. Uh, which, yeah. yeah. Another another thing that I tell people when I teach a game or when I'm learning a game, I do the same thing, which is I say. Okay, I just threw a lot of rules at you, and I want you to think of the most interesting thing you just heard and go after that. Right? So if you're playing a game, you're like, oh, I can trade a lot. I like money. You're like, just go trade. Right? right. And you may get halfway in and realize that was a bad strategy, but at least it gives you not only a short-term goal, but the one that's the most interesting to you. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm, you know, like I'm going to get a big hand. I'm going to get a lot of workers. I'm going to trade a lot. I'm going to attack, you know, Jamie, whatever it is. Like you, you've got your goal and it's the one that you want. I feel that gets people like sort of going because I saw some option paralysis maybe 10, 12 years ago. I was playing games around Christmas with family who are not gamers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game Transamerica, the little train placing game, like sort of a dirt simple thing that I played with kids a lot of times, placing your initial little cylinder of where you're going to start brought the game to a halt with adults. <laughs> and they're like, and I'm like, you got your cards. I'm like, they're like, where do I put my starting thing? I'm like, wherever, you, wherever you'd like. And they're like, right. well, what's, they're like, what's the best move? I go, put, put it in one of the cities that you have in your hand. And they're like, well, which city I go, the one you'd want to visit next. If, if you had a choice to go there in person, they're like, and they're like, is that the best method? I'm like, no, just get started. And then my five turns, the game's like 10 minutes. Like, you know, like you, you know, when we play round two, you'll have more context. But it was like 15 minutes of, I don't know what to do. And they're looking at this hex grid and they can't, they can't get off the starting block. So I usually give people like, here's, just start running this way. And it, it kind of helps. Some of my favorite games, Rob, and boy, Phil, again, this is one where you've really got my work cut out for me. Some of my favorite games are games with changing landscapes, where the opening pieces mm. vary every time. So in, in Pax Porfiriana, in Phil's uh, Mexico during the 1900s game, you get, I think it's 12 or 10, I think it's 12 face-up cards from this deck of 200 cards. They're all unique. Only 60 of them or so are going to come into play in any given game. And then at the beginning of the game, there's 12 of those on the board. They're 12 unique pieces that the players have probably never seen before. I love that in a game. But man, for a new player, another recent favorite of mine is Martin, is a study in Emerald, the Martin Wallace thing that's Sherlock Holmes versus Cthulhu. You've got 12 cities on the board. And every city is going to have a unique card face up on, on top of it. And the very first thing the players have to decide is, which one of these do I want? I love that oh. as a gamer, but I know how daunting that must be for new players. And so, Rob, your story about the Transamerica paralysis. Yeah, there's in some game designs, there's just nothing you can do about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously that's a very easy game, and, and gamers would look at their hand and go, I'm going to pick a centralized location or a space between two cities, or I'm going to see where other people place it. But, you know, you kind of scale that up, you know, like for the study in Emerald, which I haven't played. Um, but you know, I would look at that and I'd go, I'm going to pick the one with the best picture, right? Or I'm going to pick the one that's first alphabetical, not because I know what I'm doing, but I just realize I have to make a decision. And then I may get five turns in and realize why it was a bad decision. But as long as the game isn't endless, I'll go, okay, now I know, right? Now I know for next time. And, and to their credit, Phil's game, Pax Perferiana and Study in Emerald, both have really rich theming. So you're like, yeah, I want that slave plantation, or yeah, I want that huge railroad connection, or yeah, I want Sherlock Holmes, or I want a Shoggoth. I mean, they, they have these, these hugely imaginative hooks that can grab people. Uh, but yeah, with a, with a more streamlined Euro game or something, that, that would be even more daunting. Um, yeah, I, I would just like to point out that you just managed in one sentence to bring in Slave plantations, railroad connections, Sherlock Holmes, and a Cthulhu monster. I should point out those are two separate games. I know, I understand, but I'm just saying you actually said that sentence and it made sense. <laughs> uh, finally, I'd like to close with uh, do you guys have any anecdotes about teaching gone horribly wrong or horribly right? Rob, your Transamerica thing, like that, that sounds adorable. A simple game, regular people frozen by analysis paralysis with a, with a simple game like that. What are some other examples you guys have had where a, a teaching experience went terribly wrong or terribly right? 
I'll, I'll start with one of mine, actually. I had a friend bring over... Um, it, it was one of those things where he had read through the rules... And I'm sure we all have guys like this in our circle. I have some friends who, you know, I I adore their enthusiasm, but they're terrible at at teaching and at reading rules. And they'll teach us a game, and we'll get halfway through and realize, oh, we've been doing this wrong. Or I've got some people who are just of that school of thought of let's just read through the rules as we're playing. Uh, He brought Firefly over which is uh, another one of those games where early on you can kind of do whatever you want. There's a lot of stuff in front of you. You have a ship, and you go around to different planets, and on each planet you can buy stuff, but each planet sells very different kinds of things. So right from the get-go, you have to decide, what kinds of things do I want to buy? You know, Do I want to buy ship components, or do I want to buy crew, or do I want to go looking for equipment for my crew? So when, when my friend showed us this game, he'd never played it before, uh, we started playing it, and, and suddenly there were, after a few turns, just cards everywhere. Because what happens is that when you go to a planet, you turn over several cards, and you choose, which of those do I want to buy? You've turned over three cards. You can buy up to two of them. A lot of times, you just buy one of them. The cards that you don't buy, the equipment, crew, or upgrades you don't buy, they sit face up on the table, so anybody can buy them. So after we'd played a few rounds, there were cards everywhere. It was a mess. Nobody knew where to look or which cards went to which planet or was this this cards, this stack's discard pile or card offer. Uh, and it, it very nearly killed the game for us. So one of the things that I did after they left is I, I created this kind of interface. Like, okay, planets are on this side, the discard goes on this side, the cards on offer go on that side. Uh, and we tried it again and it worked well. But that first encounter with Firefly would have been disastrous if we hadn't tried it again with, with a better interface set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what are some examples that you guys have had where something went terribly wrong or terribly right in terms of teaching a game? Um, I'm happy to go. I, I, I have one from the other side of the table, which was uh-huh. learning a game, uh, which was Agricola. Um, I'd heard a lot of good things about it. I was at Gen Con. And um, the, the guy who I'm going to tell the story would break his heart if he ever heard it. Hopefully he doesn't listen to a lot of podcasts. He wanted to teach Agricola. And so my uh, then-girlfriend, now-wife, another friend of mine sat down with this guy and his son, who was like in high school at the time, and he was going to teach us Agricola. And he got so excited about teaching it and the strategy and all the cards and how much he loved it that it was like an hour before we started. Now, meanwhile, <laughs> we're in this large suite at a hotel where people are coming in and out, and they're pouring martinis, and people are laughing. And we're just getting deeper and deeper into the minutia of being a (laughs) subsistence farmer in, like, 900 A.D. We start playing, and and the three of us who are new are doing the, like, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to place a worker. But I'm just going to see what happens. It rolls around. It gets to this guy's son, who's like a teenager who's there with his dad and doesn't want to be a Gen Con. Who's not paying attention? At which point he comes to life and analyzes the board for about five minutes and then makes a move. And then his dad, who's been helping his son and trying to teach the game, then makes his move because he wants to play to win. So three moves take about 18 seconds. And then two moves take about 12 minutes. <laughs> I, I, people like had relationships, got married and gave birth before this game was over. It was, I think, four and a half hours of a beautiful cocktail party happening around us and we and and halfway through the game i realized that the object of of agricola is to be the most average subsistence farmer right i was making the biggest house i you had ever seen and then i finally like oh what's this this is a scoring card oh. 
oh god, I, I've just wasted my life, right? Like I'm looking at this and I'm halfway and I can't get out and I've lost. I have never played Agricola since then. It's a great game. This has scarred me, my current wife, and this other guy I've talked about yeah. so much that when we hear Agricola, we leave the room, right, when people are playing it. And it has nothing to do with the game. And that's why that, yeah, that first experience, I mean, I'm, I'm similarly, Rob, with Seven Wonders. I had a bad first experience with Seven Wonders, and I, I have not gone back. And I feel awful. I know it's a great game, but uh, it's dead to me. <laughs> like Agricola yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you must have some... Uh, I can imagine trying to bring games like High Frontiers, Bios Megafauna, even Pax Porphyriana. Uh, yes, I can tell you some some disasters, but what I'd like to tell you about is uh, a little more uplifting. Good. This is a um, well, those years ago. I was teaching the first grade, or it was a special presentation on my game Insecta, long out of print. So the idea is that the kids, first graders. Um, just get some insect parts and they put them together, you know, there's three parts each insect, head, thorax, abdomen, to design the uh, little bugs and then they try, um, to survive, um, and they're supposed to be eusocial insects, so they're supposed to co- sort of cooperate with different specialties, like a D&D group or something, while the hive insects are, are threatening them, okay? And I'm the hive master as a teacher. I, I'm putting in the standard bugs into the mix, the praying mantises and spiders and cicadas and katydids and the like, to see how their designs stack up against the standard ones. And they're doing okay. But they discover that the, um, you know, when their comrades get hurt, instead of helping them, you can gobble them up and you yourself <laughs> get, get uh, stronger. And so suddenly, somehow, this turned into a feeding frenzy that divided along gender lines. So, uh, and so because of this, the next bug that came along was able to clean them up easily, and um, I was able to do my hive master dance of victory and everything, <laughs> laughing at their. Um, and then suddenly they say, "Oh, we have time for a rematch! For time for a rematch!" And this time they're they're like a uh, organized army against the, uh, and they defeat the hive. But um, with a postscript, God, it was a week later. I was eating at a cafeteria somewhere and this little girl sitting across the room she recognized me from this and she drug her parents over just to talk to me and uh, and introduce me and, and say I was the bug man and everything and so this obviously made a lasting imprint on uh, uh, on both me and her I guess Phil one of the things <laughs> that uh, I uh, I my my best friend's uh, nine year old son, when he sees me or, or us playing a game, uh, I, I love explaining to him what what's going on. Like he'll be, what is that piece? What are you guys doing? Where where are those things going? Uh, and to 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 have to step back from the the procedural rules aspect of a game and just narratively express to a nine year old what's going on is is kind of a gift. Uh, I, I just love having to step back. Yeah, that perspective is so precious and something that I think we we lose sight of a lot when we're considering the systems and the, the mechanics. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jamie, so uh, what what's an experience gone great or, or gone poorly for you? And I have to say, Jamie, Euphoria is an easy sell. 
oh, it's such a just because of the good looking board, because of the concept. Um, And I can imagine I haven't seen it, but I can imagine uh, viticulture must also be an easy sell as well. Well, and, and Euphoria is fairly new. It just came out in December, really, late December. So I haven't had the experience of really teaching it to people who don't know me. I, you know, I, I, game con- I haven't been to a game convention with Euphoria yet, but I have done that with Viticulture a couple times last year. I was at game conventions where I just taught it game after game. Um, and I don't, I, I, I guess fortunately and unfortunately for this podcast, I don't have any really good stories from that, but I did have a, a one thing I learned kind of ties back to what Rob started off at the beginning of this podcast by saying, and what you said, Tom, about how the first play of a game can really impact how people view the game from then on. Um, I noticed while while teaching viticulture at, at these various conventions that having different types of players at the same table for their first play was probably not the best for anybody. Because... <laughs> You have experienced gamers there who are really ready to jump in. They don't need that much explanation. They just want to go. And then you have inexperienced gamers who have a lot of questions. They need things repeated a lot, and they, they need more in-detail explanations. And the two just don't fit at the same table. Right. And so I that's been a learning experience. I think for the future, maybe I'll try to somehow gauge that, maybe have a beginner's table and a, and a experience table when I'm demoing at the same time. Uh, the the local gaming store around where, where I live, they have separate uh, like open game nights for casual versus hardcore mm. players, and I imagine it's that same kind of yeah. awareness. Is there are two kind of schools of thought for how to approach a game, how to learn it, uh, and a lot of times they kind of uh, clash, don't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they do. And and as the designer, I just want everyone to have a good time. Right. But it's it's really hard to do that when you have two very different type of people, and then people start pulling out their cell phones, and then. Cell phones are the litmus test of a game. Yeah, yeah it really is. That cell phone moment, you see, Robin. I, I would love yeah. to tell people put your cell phones in the other. Put your cell phones in this bag. You know, I'm not. <laughs> but you're you're right, Rob. It's a valuable tool. Like if somebody's starting to check their Facebook or whatever, you're like, well, okay, something's gone wrong. We're losing him. <laughs> yeah, whether you're teaching it, whether you're playing it, it's a invaluable playtesting technique. Yeah. If mm-hmm. I have people over and suddenly one person's on their phone. I'll call them out. I'm like, okay, you're on your phone. Where did I lose you? Yeah. Right? And playtesting, they'll be like, what? I'm like, you're you're not engaged in this anymore. And they're like, well, you know, it took too long between turns. I'm like, great, thank you. Like, you, like you told me why you checked out. Right. But, like, as soon as that comes out, I, I, I hone in on it, and it startles people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, I thank you so much for, for this. Just to, uh, to close with each of you. So, Rob, uh, you're working on Seafall. Uh, yep. Is there... Is there an ETA? You probably hate this question. Uh, when, um, when can we play Seafall? We- I'd love to have it by the end of the year. Okay. Um, I, I, I think that's going to be you know fifty fifty. It gets there. It's going to be within a year. Okay. Um, my issue was not that it's late; that I announced it too early. I got excited. I'm like, I'm working. <laughs> I have a new company. Look what I'm making. And then I started playtesting. Like, oh, that was about four months too early. Um, I'm in the middle of another revision right now. Every time I do it, it gets better. So I want to get this uh, right because it's my first thing that I'm self-publishing, and I kind of counts right as such. And where so, do we go to find out more about Seafall? Is it robdavio.com or does it have its own site? You can go to uh, no, you can go to uh, robdavio.com or ironwallgames.com, and uh, it's being co-published with Plaid Hat Games. So all three of those will have information as it starts to get more to it in the next uh, two to four months. We'll start to lock some stuff in. 
Fantastic. Phil, uh, tell us a bit about, uh, first of all, when will High Frontier be reprinted so people can, <laughs> can get a copy of it? I see. Well, I'm um, working on the third edition. I've got a new set of rules called Alive and Complete, and I'm compiling for a third edition, not a reprint, um, because I'm never satisfied with the mistakes, and so it always has to be um, newer and better. It's like a living document, almost. (laughs) Yeah, a living document, and uh, there's so many great ideas um, that fans have sent in uh, that I've had that uh, that I want to incorporate. So uh, I've got um, some great starts on this, but it'll be a couple of years before you'll see High Frontier again, I'm afraid. Right now, as I mentioned, I'm working on a game on Greenland, and Greenland is like, like the ideal... Um, Euro thing. I mean, it's instead of having a sinking island that um, that uh, you have to cooperate on to survive, um, the island's freezing over. And this is a situation a thousand years ago. There were three cultures that had been isolated from each other for millennia that met for the first time in thousands of years on this desolate island. And then the ocean freezes over and the ships stop, stop coming in. And each of these three cultures, the Vikings, the Dorset, and the Inuit Eskimos, have unique uh, values of survival that um, everyone needs to survive. And so this is a um, tense sort of situation when, um, survival situation when, um, the uh, islands freezing over and three alien cultures have to somehow accommodate each other to survive. So this Jesus. is a- Phil, I, I, I want to play that. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that, that sounds awesome. Uh, is there a timeline for this, Phil, for when we might be able to see it? Um, yeah, this, this should be out by Essen, so October of this year. And for um, more information, uh, is, it, uh, is it SierraMadre.com? Um, it is SierraMadre.com. I don't. Uh, I don't have um, the playtest copies are out now, but um, I don't have a lot um, actually public on it. This is the first time I've come out, as it were, on this. And will the title will the title be Greenland, or is that just a working title? Um, uh, I've uh, the co-designer has convinced me to call it Greenland Saga after the written documents that um, it's largely based upon. Um, the written Viking documents. Okay, fantastic. I look forward to it. Saga. Great. Uh, and uh, Jamie, you will be starting a Kickstarter soon for the Tuscany expansion for Viticulture, yes? Right, yeah. So we're yeah we're in the later blind play, play, blind play stages of Tuscany right now. Um, I, I've mentioned on a previous podcast that the way that Tuscany unfolds is actually greatly influenced by my experience with Risk Legacy. So I'm, I'm glad Rob ah. is on here again. Um, just because Tuscany is, there are a lot of expansions in one box, and I will do everything I can to make sure that players only open them one at a time and not all at once, because that they'll have a pretty terrible first experience if they try to throw <laughs> in all 12 expansions all at once. <laughs> Uh, and, and currently, yeah. Euphoria, uh, Build a Better Dystopia, is available, and folks can find out about that at uh, stonemeyer.com. Can you spell that for us, Jamie? Sure, yeah, it's stonemeyergames.com. It's stone, S-T-O-N-E-M-A-I-E-R, games.com. 
Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you joining me today. Uh, and we'll see everyone here on the Quarter to Three Games podcast next week. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly enjoyed talking to all of them. Thanks again for, for their time. Uh, next week, we'll, we will be returning to video game stuff at long last. <laughs> we'll, we'll go digital after all this uh, analog stuff. So uh, join me for that. I'm Tom Chick. I appreciate your time, uh, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Whoa, in a couple of days, the come will take me away, but the press let the story leak. Now when the radical priests come to get me released, we's all on the coroner's week. And I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way.